You're listening to Hooked on Creek, a podcast celebrating the music, history, and fans of the legendary jam band Max Creek. I am your host, Corey Johnson, and you are listening to episode 30. There was a time I thought I knew. Thank you for tuning in to this very special episode of Hooked on Creek, featuring my conversation with Mark Mercier. Mark has been playing keyboards and singing in Max Creek since 1973, and in this episode, Mark and I talk about his childhood introduction to music, his memories of joining Max Creek, and his experiences performing in the band. We also talk about the meaning behind Mark's song, Said and Done, discuss the influence of the Grateful Dead, and talk about John Archer's important contributions to the band. And really, that just scratches the surface of what's included in our conversation. You can get more information about this episode and read an entire transcript of my interview with Mark Mercier on the Hooked on Creek website. Just go to hookedoncreek.com. And while you're there, click the contact link and let me know what you think. All right, now let's get started. Mark Mercier, welcome to Hooked on Creek. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for uh, doing this for us. We really appreciate it. You're doing a great job, Corey. Take me back in time. So when you're a teenager, and you're roughly 18 years old in the late 60s, what type of popular music around you is influencing your perceptions of what musical style you want to pursue? What were you listening to at that time? Uh, you know what? I, I pursued what my parents taught me, which was like big band pop music, you know, fly me to the moon, stuff that... Uh, the jazz players actually play now, but this is what they knew. But pop music, boy, I tell you what a fantastic time in music that was. It was changing, you know. Since the 50s, the mid-50s, all of a sudden you had rock and roll come in. And I remember the Beatles coming when I was in junior high school. They didn't come to Maine, but I remember when the Beatles came to New York. And this type of music was just all of a sudden, it was more than music. It was a social experience. You know, it, it transcended just listening to music and dancing. It, it was something that all of a sudden spoke to society. It, it spoke to me about the way things were, you know. And of course, in 1968, we had the Vietnam War going on, and my, my older brother got drafted. So it was, a, it was something we were all conscious of. But music was changing and evolving, and you had all this natural talent out there. It was unbelievable. And, and I remember the big band that I was into when I was a senior in high school, Little Mamas and the Papas of Jack Phillips. And uh, um, the harmonies, all of a sudden, they, they, you know, there were all these live harmonies that they had with Mama Cash and everything like that. And this, this is what we were really into. This is this is something that, uh, that really hit home. And then Crosby, Stills, and Nash, you know, and all of a sudden you had these flavors of country come into the whole situation. It was a terrific time in music. And like I said, it was more than music. It was social. It was societal. It really spoke to every aspect, right down to the to the protest movements, you know. And uh, it, was, it was wonderful, wonderful stuff. Uh, it was just fresh. It was uh, exciting, you know. Folk music. We used to have we used to have hootenannies, and uh, that's where the protest element came in. And 
remember when I was in high school as a freshman in high school, my older brother, who was a far better singer than I am, sang in one of the coffee houses in high school. And I just thought that was the greatest thing to be able to get out, drink coffee, and listen to people sing and play guitar. It was just, it was just wonderful stuff. One area I'd like to learn more about from you is during your childhood, how you ultimately found your way to playing piano. <laughs> I didn't really find my way to playing piano. I was forced. <laughs> I lived back in the day when I was in Maine, and we had to take piano lessons starting in fourth grade. And we were allowed to, uh, to stop after sixth grade if we wanted to. So both my older brothers took piano lessons and my younger sister and I did. And I was the only one that just kind of like kept on going through junior high school just because, I don't know, it's just what I did. Did I have a huge interest in it? It was, it was fun. It was a, it was a part of me, but, but it was just something that I did, you know, and change, change doesn't come easily to me. So once I was hooked into taking piano lessons, I was like, oh, okay, I'll just keep on taking piano lessons. Uh, my family was pretty musical, though. My dad uh, was a radio and TV broadcaster up in Portland, Maine. And had a background in, in music, you know, from his mom, my grandmother. And he took piano lessons and could improvise and just was, was just a great player. And so he taught me how to play a couple of things. And of course, you know, when you take piano lessons when you're a kid, you know, from John Thompson, teaching little fingers to play right up through book four, book five, you know, you, you're playing like the spinning wheel or you're playing, you know, all of these pieces that everyone played when they took piano lessons. But my dad played ragtime. He was a great ragtime player. And uh, the first thing he taught me was how to play 12th Street Rag. And it's kind of a catchy tune. There's a little bit of syncopation to it because uh, uh, to move the right hand and the left hand together at the same time uh, was was kind of an effort to, to learn. But of course, you know, when you're in a fourth or fifth grade, your brains are like little sponges. You know, you can absorb this stuff and you can do it a lot easier than you can when you're as old as I am now. And so I can't remember not being able to play that too, but I'm sure there was a time when I couldn't do it, but you know, it just was one of, one of those things. So that was kind of like the first exposure to piano I had, but uh, you know, I just kept going through high school and, and I found out that you could actually get girls by playing music. <laughs> so in junior high, you know, uh, during music class, I got up and I played. And I remember it was the, theme song to, I think it was McHale's Navy. Uh, I can't remember. And, and, you know, it was one of these junior high school music talents. So it was, okay, get up there and do something again. So I played this thing and everyone was like, wow, man, that was great. And all of a sudden girls were talking to me. <laughs> you know, they never did before. And so I decided maybe it wasn't a bad idea to keep on going with the whole situation. Little did I know back then that actually girls really use piano players to be able to talk to the guitar player, but that's the way it goes, you know? And then I started to accompany choruses and everything in high school and, and the rest is kind of history. I wasn't really intentional about going into performing. I, I was either going to be a music teacher or a math teacher. And I was accepted to the university of Maine math department, but just on a lark, I applied to university of Hartford Hart college and, and came down to Hart. Uh, because I wanted to get out of Maine. And uh, ever since then, I'm going to try to get back. Kind of interesting. So, Mark, you uh, joined Max Creek in 1973. The band officially formed in 1971. Can you tell me about your introduction 
to the music of Max Creek or the members of Max Creek at that time and sort of what led you to ultimately joining the band? Well, John Ryder was the first person I met at music school at the University of Hartford. And uh, uh, we came down to Hart and uh, my parents, of course, dropped me off, kicked me out of the car and put me in a, a dormitory room. And I sat there wondering what to do next. And there was this guy moving in down the hall with his family, so I decided I'd better go say hello. And it turned out to be John Ryder. So he and I were the first people each other met at uh, at Hart College, and uh, uh, we were both at Hart and music school, and we were of course dorm mates right down the hall from each other. So we got to be really friendly about the whole thing. We joined a fraternity together, and uh, sophomore year we decided to uh, room together. We both moved off campus into a house that was populated by fraternity guys. So we were together in the same the same bedroom. And he was uh, all of a sudden getting into this music like Bob Dylan, you know, and stuff like that. He, he just introduced me to all of this stuff I never knew anything about. And then he met up with, with uh, Dave Reed, who was a guitar player, who was also a trumpet major at heart, like John Ryder. And the two of them formed this band. And I just listened to what they were doing. And it was it kind of hit home to me. I didn't really catch it until there was one evening at St. Joseph College, and they were doing a live show. It's a dance, I guess they called it dances back then. And all of a sudden, I found myself moving to the music. Now, if you know me well, I, I don't dance. I don't dance well. But all of a sudden, this just took me, and it took me places. There was something extra about the music, something over and above, just the notes being played that just grabbed me. And uh, that was my first introduction to the music. Then I used to go every Thursday night to this bar in Hartford called The Rocking Horse and and, uh, and dance to Max Creek. And boy, I wanted to be part of this more than anything in the world. I used to sing harmonies from the audience. And, and uh, it was just, just a wonderful time. And, and what happened is Dave, who was the guitar player, got appendicitis. And... Uh, uh, his parents were Christian scientists, so they didn't believe in taking him to the hospital. His uh, his appendix, I believe, it burst, or anyway, he got gravely infected. So he wound up going into the hospital. They finally relented and took him in. Max Creek had several shows that that John wanted to play, and since I was his roommate and we had played together on several occasions, he knew I could probably handle learning some music in a hurry. So it was over Christmas vacation, and I, I came down to Hartford. And and learn some of their songs to play this gig, you know. And part of the way we learned the songs is, you know, I could write it down, but I wouldn't really remember how it went. So what I had to write down was like the introduction. If the introduction went, bum ba bum ba bum bum ba dum, I would write bum ba da bum da bum bum ba dum on a piece of paper, and that was my notes to learn how to play the song. And of course, the gig wasn't very successful, you know. But all it takes is a few times to learn the music, and I had it down. And uh, uh, it was just, it was just terrific to be part of the whole situation. Then, then when Dave came back, I just, I was like the man that came to dinner. I just never left. <laughs> what were your first impressions of Scott Morelski at that time? Well, Scott wasn't in the band when I joined. He uh, had been in the band, and I hadn't heard him. I don't know why, but uh, he got kicked out of the band because he was only sixteen. I was caught drinking a beer at the Rocky Horse. And so they said, if you bring Scott, can't play here anymore. So, so Scott was like, oh, yes, you're going to have to wait. And then I joined the band after Scott. And then there was one rehearsal that Scott came to 
in a basement in a, a little house that Bob the drummer rented. And Scott came down to listen to one of the rehearsals, and we were playing Casey Jones. And Scott was sitting on the on the, the cellar steps with a friend of his, Dave Duda, who, who we still know to this day. And when we came to the chorus, and you know that notion still crossed my mind at the very end, I heard this high harmony coming from the stairs, and Scott was singing it. It's like, man, this is great. This guy is fantastic. Then I heard him play guitar, and it's like, we we got to get it back in the band. So we asked him to rejoin, and we just we just shut up about his age for a while. But I was I was blown away by his musicianship, and he again was a trumpet player. He played he learned guitar as kind of like a sideline. So uh, um, that that's how he knew Dave and how he knew John from uh, taking trumpet lessons with Dave. In those early years of the band, how did the improvisational approach to playing music initially get infused into what you guys were doing? I remember a night at the Rocking Horse, and I was still in the audience. And they were doing a song, I think it was, Sunshine Go Away Today. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the song, they went someplace else. And I don't know what struck them to do it, but they did. And everyone was just absolutely wrapped. It's like, when are they going to get back to the song? Where are they going? This is really cool. And they just reacted to the musical moment and built a little section of the music. And then gradually turned around and came back to the song. But that was the first time I ever heard them jam. And to be able to have the freedom to express your life, express yourself like that in the middle of a song was just something fantastic. <laughs> so it kind of like gained steam as we went along. And then we used to go from song to song without stopping and, uh, and trying, you know, trying our wings as far as, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to make it happen? And we invented a few parameters. It's like, okay, so there's imitation. Uh, there's a key changes. How are we going to make key changes? We discovered back then you can't make a key change without the bass player because he's, he's the one that determines the root of the chord. But at the same time, we like predetermined some places we could go. But that was like a springboard to the whole situation. And, uh, and since then, it's been free form. But we, we've used whatever technique that we have at our disposal to make it happen, you know. It's uh, imitation. We go back and forth with uh, call and answer, you know, development. We actually use classic forms. We used a fugal form a couple of times. You know, we would make a statement and then do an exposition, kind of like classic form, Mozart or something like that. We would use counterpoint. I was big on counterpoint. I'm an organ player, church music, and that was my major in school. So, so counterpoint is just something that kind of like falls under my fingers. So we used a lot of stuff like that. But I mean, every time we did something, it led us someplace else. It wasn't quite as technical as jazz. I wished I had learned a lot of technique that jazz players know in terms of chord structure, in terms of how to improvise with your right hand. Some of the jazz idioms, they're absolutely fantastic things. And I think my one regret was not taking the time back when my brain <clears throat> was a little more supple to be able to learn this stuff. So at least I can say that at the age that I'm at, I'm still learning new things because I'm starting to attack it now with a venture. And we'll see what happens. At this time, 
what level of awareness did you or the rest of the band have in what the Grateful Dead were doing? Because they were certainly blazing a trail in improvisational music. And I would imagine some of the fans of Max Creek at that point in time were familiar with Grateful Dead. Was the Grateful Dead influencing some of the decisions the band was making or was it just, was it not part of the mix? Or Oh yeah, it was very much part of the mix. You know, the whole improvisatory thing, uh, the way they jammed together. Yeah, and this, I mean, we loved the Dead. We, we learned an awful lot of Dead tunes. But here's, there's a caveat. The thing we took home from the Dead was we learned them in our own way. Yeah, we used some of the idioms in the songs, you know, but sometimes we approximated the idiom and then used our own technique to kind of like throw it into the recipe, put it in the pot, stir it up, and then see what came out that was a little bit more Max Creaky than it was Grateful Deady. You know what I mean? But we always thought if we could play a Grateful Dead song and play it our way, that's what the dead would want us to do. You know, it was just kind of, kind of interesting. And and this is what they did. I mean, they took Love Light, which is, they didn't write it. You know, they took Fade Away. They didn't write it. A lot of these songs they took, they made their own. And a lot of people attribute it to the Grateful Dead, but they didn't write these songs. They were a garage band. So they kind of did it in their own way. And that gave us permission to do even their tunes in our own way. But at the same time, you know, I'm famous for bringing in cover tubes to the band. And I insist that we do them like we do them. You know, uh, we don't do a cover tune verbatim. And playing verbatim, not only is like uncreative, it's just, it's, it's a lot of work, <laughs> you know, to learn how to play these cover tunes exactly the way that they did back then. It's like, no, we don't want to do that. We were, we were too lazy. We have too good a time with the music. So I think that's why we kind of went in the direction we did. 2021 is the 50th anniversary of Max Creek. And I'm wondering when you're up on stage and playing, how do you know when you've had a good show? Is it something you can feel in the music or something you see in the crowd? Boy, I tell you, you don't. It's just kind of interesting. And you know, you bring your mood with you when you go on stage. And, uh, you know, you could be on stage and you'd be sitting there. It's like, boy, I'm really going to go to the bathroom. Or, oh, man, you know, I just, <laughs> you know had a fight with my girlfriend before I went on stage. You look out, the crowd's having a good time, but uh, I, you're just not feeling it. And then you listen to it later on, and it's like, whoa, that was a really good show, you know? And then on the other hand, you can be up on stage, and you can think, this is the best show we've played, like, since 1978, you know? And, so, and then we climb off stage, and someone comes up and says, boy, you know, you guys kind of suck tonight. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> Whatever. So, I mean, sometimes you and the way like the audience is on, it's not, it's not the same, but sometimes it is. And when things are clicking and you look out and all of a sudden the whole scene becomes a unit, it's one. It's not the band. It's not the audience. It's not individuals with the audience. It's not Scott on guitar. It's like Max Creek and the audience. And it's a world. It's a universe right there in the place. And I don't think that you can help but feel that when it's happening, you know, there's, there's just kind of like a flow to the whole situation. It's timeless. You know, it's like, how long did that night last? Well, I don't know. It seemed like it lasted forever, but then it was over really quickly. But I, boy, I don't know how long it was. So that's kind of like how, you know, when you've had like an exceptional show. One of the ways I view your contributions to Max Creek is through this 
this lens of, of Mark as the storyteller. And I don't know if it's fair or not to put you in that box, but I oftentimes engage with your songs from that starting point. And, you know, your contributions to the band on a songwriting perspective, too, is impressive to me. And I'm curious, for a song like Said and Done, where does the inspiration of a song like that come from? Or, or maybe there's a story behind that song that you'd like to share? Oh, boy, the song is really three songs. I'll tell you what the inspiration was for Said and Done. Uh, Scott Morosky was going to, songwriting-wise, kick my ass. We had a show as a duet booked in Providence, Rhode Island, and he was bringing in a new uh, original tune. And by God, I had to bring in an original tune, too, or else I would like you know look like an idiot. So I had this song that had like all these different parts to it, and I put them together. There was a chorus, and then there was a there was a bridge, and then there was this story, and uh, I didn't know exactly how to do it, and poetic wise. Just a bunch of strings uh, put together. What I got fascinated with with that song was, it's like the something of the something will something of the something will affect that of that. You know, and using the word of, and just like going down the line and how one part of the song affects the other part of the song affects the other part of the song, and it's like the children of our children will shiver in the chill of the shadow of the master. That you know. And it's just like, that to me was a, was a really interesting songwriting technique. But there's three different songs in there. And there's, there's a song about, um, I had a conversation with someone about power. And it was this, this girl that I knew down in Providence, Rhode Island. She was very upset. And she said, don't you know that America is ruled by old white men? And she was just mad as hell. And since then, she's been proven to be right. I mean, I should be mad as hell too. It should have been by then. But I was like sitting there thinking, kind of like the Kurt Vonnegut thing, you know, where there's a there's a cave in the hills where all of this stuff is operated by this big machine, but not this big machine by this committee of guys that that climb up into the mountains and they sit down and they talk to each other and they plans for society. You know, what are the ramifications of that? And then how does it end? You know, does it end like the Roman Empire when they can plan all they want to, but when the barbarians are coming to the gate, boy, I tell you, you're done for. You know, everything has an, has an arc, has a bell curve. So that was part of the inspiration. The other part, one part was my brother, who was just a spectacular singer, a great musician, you know, just an unbelievable human being. He died of AIDS in 1992 back at the beginning of the epidemic. And uh, I was very sad. I'm still sad to this day about that situation. I really am. His musicality meant a lot to me. It's very inspirational. So that's the part where, you know, I, I thought you were there, you know. And then, of course, there's various relationships you've had in the past, you know, that ended in various ways. I'm a huge fan of the bittersweet. And I think without the darkness, you're not able to see the light, you know? So you got to pay attention to the darkness because out of that comes wholeness, comes fullness, you know? So that's what that song is about. Thank you. Thank you for that. In my conversations with Greg DeGuglielmo, he told me about some interactions Max Creek had with Fish back in the late 80s. I'm wondering if you have any memories of interacting with members of that band back then. Interaction-wise? We kind of knew them. They came into the dressing room 
of the living room in Providence, Rhode Island. And they sat down with us, and I can't remember whether it was during the break or after the show or before the show. But they said, we are interested in how you did what you did to get where you are. And I think they actually took notes. So they used us maybe as an inspiration of how not to do it. I don't know. <laughs> you know, That's always a possibility because God knows we did a lot of stuff wrong. But they kind of like took a few notes. And, and you can tell in their organizational and musical process that they kind of like took what we did, but they took it to the nth degree. You know, they took it, got up to their elbows in the mix and uh, really paid attention to detail on the whole situation. God love them. They are spectacular, detail-oriented people, and they they have done what they've done through inspiration, talent, and a lot, a lot of hard work. They really have. Were there times over the last 50 years when Max Creates future was in doubt? And if so, what do you think kept the band together through those times? <laughs> the future is in doubt every day. <laughs> <laughs> it always was. Uh, Scott? had decided he didn't want to tour because he had a family and he, uh, his wife was, was pregnant with twins and he wanted to be able to be there for her and for the children. You know, he made the choice that perhaps that was more important than, you know, playing a gig in Situate, Massachusetts. So we, we actually stopped playing for a little while, but I, I never really had the impression that we were going to stop forever. It's just, this is, this is too much of a family. Dysfunctional as it is, it's a huge family. And really we can't perceive of ourselves any other way than doing this. You know, you, you can, you can try to leave it if you want to, but you're drawn back to it. And, uh, we've actually, <laughs> you know, had a couple of, couple of roadies quit, walk away and hop up, you freaking guys. <laughs> you know, they'll walk away. And then I talked to them three or four years later and they go, you know, so far I haven't never had as good a time as I have working with this band. And, and it just stays with you. This there's an X factor that lives inside you, that calls to you, that is part of you. And, uh, no, no matter where you wind up, it's, it's always good to get back home. So that's what Max Creek really is. Uh, but, but you know, the future is always in doubt. I mean, you never know. I mean, one of us could drop on the sidewalk at any time, <laughs> you know, hopefully not, but uh, it could happen. And and any one of us could decide, you know, my heart is not doing what it should be. So I, I should probably quit because I'm going to have a heart attack or, or, you know, I, I don't know. Anything can happen. Anything could happen. But that's part of life. That's part of reality. You never really know what's going to, what's going to come around the corner at you. But you just go on with the faith that you feel like you're in the right place that you should be right at the moment. I've had the privilege to talk with a lot of people to learn about the history of Max Creek, but one person I'm not too familiar with is John Archer. I understand he was a sound engineer for the band for many years. Can you tell me about his role in supporting the band? He didn't support the band. He was part of the band. That's when we decided to pay John Archer as a sound man as a member of the band. John Archer was a fraternity brother of John Ryder and mine. And uh, when we moved off campus in 1969, 1970, uh, John Archer was in the room next to us 
And his favorite album was, was Santana Abraxas. He used to blare Abraxas. Tom Ryder and I would vibrate out of our beds to the sound, to the sound of Santana Abraxas, you know. Well, he got interested in sound. And I don't know how he did it. This was maybe before my time in the band. But when the band was on stage, John Archer was always interested in making them sound as good as they could to affect the people in the audience. Started out with some gold custom columns. And then we had an ovation uh, amplifier and two ovation speakers. We took them apart. But it was like music back then. Sound was in its infancy. First time I was at a concert, I heard Jefferson Airplane. And they were playing through voice of the theater speakers, you know, which are speakers in back of the movie screen. There was great big horns and everything. It was totally unintelligible. But we lived through the invention of the, the uh, equalizer, the multi-band equalizer. You know, the preamp and amplifier situation. Stereo on stage, oh my God. You know, you could actually play in stereo. Inputs, uh, effects. We bought these little effects unit, reverb unit. We bought a, what was called an echoplex. And it was a reel-to-reel tape repeater that, you know, you could talk into it and it recorded your voice and then it played it back on a series of heads. So you had an echo of yourself and John Archer loved this stuff. And uh, he renamed himself Master of the Machines, Maurice, Maurice of the Machines. And uh, that was his persona. And uh, he was he was part of the band. Uh, his mix was just what defined us. It really did. Some of the old mixes just were, were incredible. He really had intuitive ability to know when to turn things up, turn things down. And it just was such a, such a pleasurable thing to listen to when he mixed sound. He uh, wound up leaving the band because he was developing tinnitus and uh, didn't really want to live the rest of his life listening to, you know, a whistle at 2,500 2, cycles per second in his head for the rest of his life. And he got married, so and he had a love of the Civil War, so he wound up moving to Gettysburg and, and get it, writing a book, writing several books, and being a guy for the Civil War battlefield. But he was he was definitive as far as our sound is concerned. He really was the road manager of the band for a long time. He, even though he's kind of a shadowy figure, he was such an integral part of the whole thing. So, given the wide songbook that Max Creek has available to uh, perform in front of an audience. I wonder now in 2021, are there any songs the band plays that are particularly nostalgic for you or that bring up certain memories that, that when the band plays is something special for you? It depends on the night. Different things shine on different nights. And it's totally unexpected when they do sometimes. You can, you can go about deliberately making some song into a special thing. Uh, and it doesn't turn out the way that you expect it to, but all of a sudden you turn around and something happens and it becomes a very special thing. I would say some of the older songs, John Ryder's song, Crystal Clear, uh, is an old country tune that he wrote. It's always great to do those songs. Bob Goslin was a heck of a songwriter. And he wrote Morning Star and he, he wrote uh, several songs that we do to this day that are that are very special. They really are. It, it brings tears to my eyes to sing Morning Star. It just is it's such a great, well-written song. Is it an earth-shaking 
a meta song? No, it's not. But it's just a lovely tune that is, just, you know, very definitive of the way we are. Tell me about Bill and Jay and uh, I guess the flavor they add to Max Creek. Oh, Bill has more energy than uh, than you can shake a stick at. That guy is is absolutely fantastic. He's got very very great ideas about what should happen sometimes. He's very energetic in terms of how how he implements this, and and God love him from that. He really has he really has injected a huge amount of energy into the band, and creatively, he can sit and look at our strong points and know how to market them. He's fantastic. We never had anything on Spotify before Bill. You know, we never thought of doing anything virtual. He brought us into the into the 21st century. We would still be recording on cassette tapes if, if, if it wasn't for Bill. You know, he, he just has a lot of imagination, a lot of energy. He's a very smart guy, uh, very positive, always smiling. And Jay is an incredibly cosmic person. We had we had a percussionist, Rob Free, who really was one of the definitive aspects of Max Creek, you know, his percussion playing. And when Rob passed away, uh, we didn't have that. And Jay added it back in. I mean, Jay has the ability to, to hit a triangle right in the right space. It's just the weirdest thing. It just blows my mind to talk to him a lot of times. He's just incredibly cosmic. He's just tuned into something that, that sometimes I wish I could access. He's just just amazing. So the two of them really have breathed an incredible amount of life into this band. They really have. And I'm, I'm grateful that they agreed to play with a bunch of old guys. You know, they weren't even born when we started the band. Just kind of interesting, you know, to get a fresh perspective. But, but musically speaking, they're kind of timeless. They can, they can get along with the old stuff, and yet they bring fresh influences in that, that really inspire us a lot. So uh, I'm glad they're, I'm glad they're here. I really am. I don't know what we do without them. As of this recording, we are 112 days away from Camp Creek, if I did that math right. What is it about Camp Creek that makes that event so special to the band and to your fans? Uh, it's a family gathering. It's a chance for people to come home. It's a chance for people to, to, to live together and be together for good or ill, you know, for three days, maybe four. And it gives us a chance to show them who we are, which sometimes takes some time. You know, you do a three or four hour show and sometimes that doesn't give you enough time to really show people what you're feeling at the moment. So Camp Creek gives us that ability because we'll play a six hour set. We started out in Granby, Connecticut with a little backyard camp. We actually started before that with parties in their hands in Rhode Island. Uh, with people that used to come bring tents so they wouldn't have to drive home. And uh, we moved it to Granby, Connecticut, and that was our first Camp Creek. And then we moved to Maine and hooked up with these incredible people in Maine to put on Camp Creek up in Maine. We stopped doing it for a little while, and then and then I, I started doing it. This was, this was my chance to throw a party for people. It was just terrific stuff. Uh, boy, we did. We could throw a party and make sure everyone had a great time and... and listen to music that they wouldn't normally be able to listen to. I brought in African bands. I brought in bagpipes. I brought in all of this stuff just to give you a, a real palette of, of music that you could, you could listen to over the course of the thing. But, but mostly it was a chance for people to get together and camp and be with each other for three days. So, I mean, really, it's one of the defining points of Backstreet to be able to be with everyone. 
there was a time we could drive through the campsite and I would know the names of almost everybody there, you know? My brain doesn't operate quite as well these days, so I can't remember a lot of, lot of names, but I know faces, I know people, and it's like, all of a sudden, all, all these friends are gathering together, and they're, they're here to listen to music and, and have an experience, and you know, under the night sky. And again, it's it's that big cosmic unit that I was talking about, that big universe that you get a chance to have every now and then. And this this is our opportunity to have it. Then we realized that uh, when we played a festival, it was usually somebody else's festival. And the only way to be stars of a festival was to throw your own damn festival. So that's one reason why we, we like the idea is that we could throw a festival and and by God, we were the stars. Don't try to stop us from being that way. You know, we had a chance to start our stuff on stage, and, and sometimes other bands, if you were part of like uh, Acoustic Hookahs Festival, you you wouldn't have the opportunity to show them who Max Creek really was. And this gives us a chance to. And I would say that's uh, that's one of the things that makes it special for us. Maybe that's a selfish way of looking at it, but uh, you know, boy, we had have a great time every time it happened. I'm looking forward to seeing you at that one. That's right. And so fans of this podcast might have picked up that I've never actually seen Max Creek. But this year, I'm going to Camp Creek. And I'm wondering, Mark, do you have any advice for me? By all indications, we're going to have a great time. This is an exceptional venue, too. I think you will like the venue. We love the venue. Great place to be. It really is. So expectations-wise, I don't know. Go around and say hi to people because that really is where it's at. And I'll tell you, you're pretty well-known among our crowd, so... You know, you got to have a lot of friends there. I hope so. I hope so. With things opening up now in the pandemic, I know you guys have some shows lined up this summer. I'm wondering what message do you have for fans of Max Creek who have been waiting so long to see you? You know, come back. Come back. But that said, don't take anything for granted because uh, one thing the pandemic shows us is that, is that uh, boy, things could, things could fall like a house of cards at any point. You know, and still can. I mean, who knows when we're going to get a fifth wave or a sixth wave or something. Enjoy it while you can. Be careful with each other. Take care of each other. That's what the pandemic was all about, is, is taking care of ourselves. Not doing quite as much balls against the wall partying, but, you know, taking care. Uh, taking care of each other, being considerate of each other. Um, giving a shit about each other. But come back and enjoy the music, because I tell you, the few times that we have played... It's been inspirational. It's been creative. It's been everything. It's everything. It's it's always been. Even old ground is new sometimes. Well, Mark, thank you so much for talking with me today. It really means a lot to me that you joined me on the Hooked on Creek podcast. This has been my pleasure, Corey, really. Thank you for doing this. This is fantastic that you're doing this. And plus, it, it enables people to kind of like, you know, get into things they normally wouldn't know about the band or the people involved. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it's nice to be a little more in-depth about things, you know. Thank you for allowing me to uh, to talk at you for a little while. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye-bye. I really hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Mark Mercier. It's really hard to express what an honor it was for me to have him on this podcast. All right. Now let's end this episode with a little music. This is Max Creek performing Said and Done live at Sterling Stage in Hannibal, New York on July 1st, 2000.
Come all you survivors, you warriors all, you souls of breath and pervious to pain. Sit down at my table with your backs to the wall. Tell my time your story, stake your claim. We'll lift our voices up in song and raise our glasses high in praise of the battles we have won. But the days are growing shorter and the time is growing nigh to count for all the things we've said and done. Come sit a bit beside me and reflect if you will upon the many hands that we all played. Everything we've done to build our houses so tall, the fulfillment of the plans that we all made. And as the night grows older and the candles grow dim and laughter slows and memories entice, Whispering in the cobwebs, in the corners of the room Lie the ghosts of all the souls that paid the price I was a hunter and a fighter by trade A killer and creator all in one Soon enough there comes a time to let the children we made Carry home the stones when we are done Now standing here above you I survey my domain From a window and a tower on a hill I'm gazing at the sunset with the wind upon my face And I'm feeling someone more than unfulfilled Somewhere in the distance A long time ago I gave my heart to one I thought I knew I don't know why she left me And I don't know where she went But to carry on was all that I could do you know, it was the only thing to see me through This morning I thought you were there I swear I saw you standing by my bed Then I saw your figure vanish Dissolve into air With the memory of you aching in my head May God look down upon me And be kind at my end Should I fail to see the writing on the wall May the God 
another person that dares to live Look down upon me too You know sometimes I think I need that most of all Somewhere in the distance A long time from now A part of me believes that you'll return The memory of your life And the love that you had Is enough to fan the fires that still burn In the springtime I will sleep And you'll open my eyes And I realize what's right and what is true In the summertime when the sun is high I'll dance until I'm done And when September comes I'll think of you Barbarians are knocking It's time we should leave Let's grab our coats and hats And let us go Lock the door behind you Don't leave the key And don't look down to see What's there below The wheels that we set turning Will echo through time Although our days are numbered I suppose the children of our children will shiver in the chill of the shadow of the master that we chose. concludes episode 30 of Hooked on Creek. If you are curious, during the introduction to this episode, I played a portion of Hard Love, performed by Max Creek, live at Lupo's Heartbreak Hotel in Providence, Rhode Island, on December 27, 1996. And as always, let me know if you have suggestions for future episodes or recommendations on people to interview for this podcast. You can get in touch with me via the contact link on the Hooked on Creek website at hookedoncreek.com or via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Hooked on Creek to get connected. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for tuning in.